and welcome to the 34 Circe Salon. This is the Feminine Divine, Make Matriarchy Great Again, and I am Sean Marlon Newcomb, and I am here with Don Sam Alden. Hi, Don. How are you? And you have brought us a very special guest today. I have the wonderful, magnificent, uber busy L. Stephanie Tate. Good morning, Good morning. Good morning. I feel like I will never live up to that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you already do. You already do. So um, as our listeners may remember, the uh, Feminine Divine series that we're doing here on um, 34 Circe Salon is a personal series where we're investigating the aspect of matriarchy that involves a divine feminine. And we live in a world where uh, the divine is very much, very much associated with the masculine. And so we wanted to investigate uh, alternatives to that. And the wonderful L. Stephanie Tate and I met, oh Lord, we met at a science fiction and fantasy convention where I was dressed as a Klingon and she had just written a book of fables about the moon. Does this this qualify as a geek alert or should we? Yes. Yes, definitely. Oh, definitely. And also, you know, one of the most original meat cutes that you've ever heard. So, <laughs> so Hollywood take note. Um, but Stephanie, like myself, um, has pagan leanings. And um, so I wanted to invite her onto the podcast to talk about the feminine divine. So, Stephanie, let's just start with sort of um, how did you come to be where you are in terms of your spiritual journey? Were you raised um, with a with a patriarchal divine or were you um, like me, uh, you know, raised by wolves out in the field or how did you start? Well, I feel like it's a little bit of a hybrid. So <laughs> my parents would be horrified if I um, called us a pack of wolves, but we kind of are. Uh, they, <laughs> they are very much feminist. The women in my family have historically been feminists. These like really amazing kind of like witchy Scottish women, you know, <laughs> um, on both sides. <laughs> Could you explain just for for me, like the uninitiated, what what you mean by that? Like, what do you mean witchy Scottish women? Well, I mean, they were actual witches. So, um, although, again, you know, had the the outward appearance of being uh, good Presbyterians, you know, going to church. And um, my grandmother, who was Texan, was very involved in like the Methodist church. But, you know... The druidic practices and the frame practices and the the Pictish practices were very prevalent uh, in wow. in certain yeah in like certain certain rituals. Whether or not even we were cognizant of it until we started actually doing research into it, I don't know. But it was very much this like omnipresent thing where yeah. 
you know. I'm sorry. I'm going to pester you a little bit about it because I really want to understand. So when you say these these Druidic practices were present and they were kind of witch, even though they were Presbyterian, are, are you talking about, you know, sort of cultural things that were transmitted from like a Scottish heritage? Or are you talking about real specific, like, okay, we have our ritual that we have passed on from our great, great, great grandmother to today? A little bit of both, actually. Um, without getting into the familial specifics, obviously, um, but there is some like you know Scottish traditions, and um, I mean you you see that in all of these like uh, all of these. Ooh, sorry, as I drop things. <laughs> <laughs> Magic. No, uh, so you see this in like all these different cultures because you know we also. On my Scottish side, we also come from the Orkney Isles, which is very Viking and until it was given, obviously, to uh, to the United Kingdom. Um, you can see it in how nature is very prevalent, like the connection to nature is very prevalent. There are certain like there are certain practices you do before you eat, before while you're preparing food, you know, before you go to bed, when you wake up in the morning. There there are certain like certain seemingly small but very profound and important things that you do that grounds you into the nature spirits that grounds you into something bigger than yourself um acknowledges your place and kind of kind of subverts the patriarchy whether or not you know the women in my family again were able to recognize that they were subverting the conditioning that they were they were handed by society so cultural practices, mm -hmm. could you give me an example of one that would represent that? I think even like the belief in, in certain spirits, right? In, in certain, uh, certain supernatural elements that are handed through Scottish cultures, right? So things like will-o'-the-wisps, um, even the idea of being a female healer using herbology, using energy work and so forth, that's something that... Um, when I lived in Scotland, I found was still very prevalent. And so I was able to retrain in country the things that my family had already been doing. Um, you know, certain things of like certain days of the year, you have to be careful because of like, you know, I'm trying to think of examples. Like now that I'm on the spot, obviously, like... <laughs> It's all going we'll, right out the window, but like we will, you know. we'll hold off, and we can we can let you give any examples you want, whatever you want. But yeah, I mean, just I was I was thinking general because what's going through my head is I'm picturing in this. Oh my gosh, I hope this doesn't get taken the wrong way. I keep picturing Bewitched, where Darren marries Samantha, and Samantha <laughs> is actually actually has a whole witch practice going on, and Darren is like, okay. Oh, I didn't realize you were a witch the whole time. So that's all I'm trying to get out of my Stephanie, can you do that thing with your nose? I mean, I can. And to be fair, uh, Bewitched feels like a documentary of my current married life. So, you know, <laughs> except he knew. He knew before he married me. So it's good. <laughs> well, I wonder if it was sort of like... Um, so my mother was German. She was raised in Germany. She only came over to America when she married my father. And um, the first time we visited Germany when I was 16, um, I remember looking around the house of my mother's sister, my aunt, and seeing things and thinking, oh, these are German things. <laughs> because, you know, up until that point, it was just something that my mom did. Mm. 
and uh, I hadn't really been educated in the culture of, you know, in, in German contemporary culture. Um, and so it wasn't until I went back, you know, went to the source that I realized what these, you know, that these traditions were in fact part of my German heritage. Mm-hmm. I wonder if it was similar when you went to Scotland. It was actually, yeah. Although there were so many things, especially like, you know, using things like herbology and in crystal therapy and energy work. Like and we knew that that was Scottish, but then when I got to Scotland, it was like, Oh, I see how Scottish this is. <laughs> and I see how witchy it is. And, and I was able to, like you, I was able to get the context to really ground the tradition in, in what it was actually doing. And in realizing how subversive it was uh, to continue to be a female healer, you know, in a patriarchal society, but in a way that female healers are in a Celtic tradition or a Pictish tradition or a Freyan tradition. And so, yes, absolutely. Like going to Scotland and living there for several years, it was like, oh, right. Okay. <laughs> this, this is a sense now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Cause it, it wasn't just like, oh yeah, this is a Scottish thing. It's like, oh, this is a Scottish thing. <laughs> you know? Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. This is a Scottish thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And never more, more obvious than, uh, you know, there's the storytelling museum in Edinburgh. And it's really close to uh, the John Calvin house. And um, I used to go there all the time and they had the the storytelling uh, festivals once a year and went and they had a, a guy who was ancient and basically only really spoke Gaelic well. His English was okay, but like his Gaelic was great. Yeah. And he was, he started telling all of these like, ancient stories and and they involved all of these you know nature spirits essentially um and listening to him I was like oh right that's where that comes from got it (laughs) yeah yeah oh that's so cool so that took place near the Calvin house too which is interesting so we're John Calvin so you have that whole other stream side by side. Yes. And I loved it. I remember telling my mom and she was like, well, that's perfect universal balance. <laughs> because you, you have the ultimate misogynist, John Calvin. And then you have like the storytelling um, museum, which is predominantly female. A lot of women coming from all over Scotland, all over the world, uh, coming in and telling these traditions. And of course, of course, you know, like um, people across the gender spectrum are also involved, but it's predominantly a very feminine space. Um, and so it, it was, it was so perfect having those two so close together because it was like, yeah, take that John Calvin. <laughs> you can't, you can't, <laughs> you can't get it out of us like this is this is who we are we're in your backyard we're creeping up on you (laughs) we've always been there exactly and we're not going away (laughs) it's amazing we we always talk about don and i uh on this podcast about this cross current like i've always felt there's this tension in the west with these two prevailing traditions you have the 
tradition people think about in the West, which is this patriarchal, you know, Conan on the chariot and the overlords coming in and sweeping through. But you also have this undercurrent of an earlier matriarchal tradition that's, mm-hmm. that's existed and continues. So how for you in just even your daily life now, like in the, it just, how does it inform your, your daily interaction? Well, let's, let's back up a little bit, Sean, and let's, sure. uh, let's continue to, uh, to sort of unfold the development of your, of your spiritual, um, uh, I guess your, your sort of current paradigm. Journey. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm trying to think. So, you know, this has always been a part of my life. And I also, ever since I was a child, was obsessed with um, Norse mythology in a very non-white supremacist way. I want to put that disclaimer since it's been completely misappropriated. Yeah, I think it's sad because the mythology is an amazing mythology and it's got a very strong female, very strong goddess element. So it's kind of actually annoying that the people immediately associated with that. It's so... It's so angering, especially because, you know, the the Norse cultures were not a homogenous society and the people who have rewritten the history of uh, Norse cultures just have done such a disservice because you have to remember the Adas that we have were written by a monk. They were written by a guy who was like, oh, we better get this down. It's like, oh, really? You're going to bring your patriarchal Christian ideas to this? Even the idea of having, you know, Thor and Odin and all this stuff, it's like every single god has a a male or a female counterpart. There has to be universal balance. And they've completely written out the entire goddess tradition that permeated Norse culture before, you know, before the establishment of the Asgardian reign, right? And and they have examples yeah. of that. They have examples of of goddess. I mean, the the whole planet did goddess worship before, you know, we were tainted by this weird idea that like dicks were more powerful, but um I should have asked him. I allowed to say okay. <laughs> oh yes, you are not only allowed, you are encouraged. Okay, good. I should have asked about my language beforehand. So, you know, growing up, I I would read these stories, right? I would read these stories about Thor and Odin and and Loki. And, you know, in the background, you'd have Frigga and Freya. And then you had, you know, the vilification of Ran and um, even like, you know, the Norns and, and, you know, Idun with her golden apples, who was so infantilized, it was insulting. And I remember reading them and and feeling like, feeling like I was only given about one one thousandth of the story. And not just because we had lost so many of the traditions, but because I felt like it was the wrong person who was telling us about it, that it was a, that it was a biased narrator, you know? Yeah. Well, that's, it's interesting to me because when I encountered the Norse pantheon, it's, I was struck by how powerful the goddesses were, particularly Freya, who stood out for me because she was both a goddess of warfare, a battle goddess, and a goddess of sex and love. So mm-hmm. she had this like combination that was pretty astounding, choosing half the slain and really kind of living the life she chose to lead the way she wanted to lead it. Yeah. So I, you, to me, I could see this really strong divine feminine element, even as what mostly what was put forward, at least in popular, in popular consciousness was the, were the males, the male gods. Uh, when I would read what was there, I'd be like, wow, there is a lot 
going on underneath here with these goddesses in a way that I hadn't seen in some other pantheons. Mm-hmm. So, so that still was there, you know? Oh, absolutely. But when you think of how watered down it is, even down to like the structure of what their society was and trying to homogenize it and, and being like, oh yeah, you had your shield maidens, but they were like a separate set as opposed to realizing that their armies had to be half male, half female because of Mm -hmm. that idea of universal balance. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And even when you look at like the, uh, the natural elements that are associated with every single sign, every single God, every single rune, like even, even the nature spirits, even like the trees that are associated, like they have a masculine and a feminine and, you know, it just, for me, reading, reading these things, yes, you had Freya, you had Frigga, you had Ron, but I wanted to know more about, like, Verthandi. I wanted to know more about Vor, Oestra, you know, like, I wanted to know more about oh. Stiff, you know, and yeah. Yeah. You, you just didn't really get that. Like, even the stories of Ron, so in the book that I wrote, um, it's actually uh, original fairy tales. And uh, two of the stories, one is a continuation of the other. And it is a story about a line of royalty, essentially queens, that descend from Ran. And it's a way to try to reimagine, well, not reimagine, but like change the idea of Ran. So like, so that Ran is not the bad guy. It, It shows how like, you know, she's she's essentially like playing out a part that has been assigned to her and she's in a in an abusive essentially an abusive marriage um and she winds up falling in love with an uh with a midgardian they have a child and then they continue to that line continues to only have daughters and they they rule the kingdom um and she visits them only every once in a while when when there's impending doom but i remember <laughs> <laughs> but i remember when i first found out about ron being like there's something that just doesn't feel right here and it felt so much like the texts that were written in the 1400s you know the the treaties on witches and so forth of like how do you identify a witch right all those texts that came out in the 1400s the story of ron felt that way to me where it was like oh yes this oversexed woman who just drags men under the depth to satisfy her unnatural needs and it's like hold on what Well, First, it's, it's, it's interesting because I'd all. like you to tell us, you know, who they, who these people are. So for the listener, just uh, explain these goddesses, you know, tell us a little bit about them and explain Asgard and Midgard, just so we have a context for listeners who may not be as familiar with them. Right. Sorry. I do that a lot where I'm like, oh yeah, here's this thing, right, everybody? And everyone's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> no worries. No worries. Um, so... There's, I'm trying to even think of how to start. So obviously with Norse mythology, you have um, the nine realms, Midgard being essentially Earth, uh, the human realm. Um, And then you have Asgard, which is populated by people from different groups, including the Aesir, uh, which is essentially like the ruling class. So you have Odin, Thor, Frigga. Um, You have the Vanir, who's another group. 
And that includes Freya, Frey, and I don't even know how to describe um, the veneer. Uh, but were they an earlier? I mean, I'm trying to remember from the readings I've done it. Were the were the veneer the earlier pantheon of gods? You know, kind of like you know these different layers, like the Aesir were a newer group of gods that developed in the vendor, or is that not correct? I mean, that's what I remembered reading. I, I believe so. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I believe that the vineyard were older, and if I remember correctly, they had actually uh, been in conflict with the ASU, and then they wound up uh, becoming allies, essentially. Right. Um, and the veneer uh, were essentially... I mean, this is grossly oversimplifying, but they were in charge of making things beautiful, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were also, you know, in the case of Freya, they were also incredibly powerful, which is why they needed to be allied with the Aesir. Well, I should say, which is why the Aesir needed them to be aligned with right. them. <laughs> right. needed to be allied with them, yeah. Exactly. And then you obviously have, like, um, the Yurin, which are the the giants, and then you have uh, the dwarves, which are um, <laughs> kind of the labor class. If we're if we're thinking about it in terms of like a societal structure and a hierarchy, um, but Ran was an Aesir who was the uh, essentially the goddess of the sea. Um, mm-hmm. I am blanking on her husband's name, but he he was always throwing banquets, always excluding her. Um, she was really shunned by everyone, um, and she had uh, she had nine daughters who were waves. And um, so when the water was really choppy and everything else, they'd be like, "Oh, Ron's daughters are out." Um, there's also talk that she is also the mother of Heimdall. Um, yeah, uh, or it depends on what you read. It's either the mother or the grandmother or the aunt. Like (laughs) she's somehow in line with Heimdall. They're family. Yeah. Yeah. They're, you know, (laughs) they have Thanksgiving together. They see each other on the holidays. Exactly. Exactly. Um, sends him $5 on his birthday. (laughs) If he's lucky. (laughs) He's hard to shop for because he can see everything, you know, so you just can't surprise him. Can't surprise him. Um, In terms of the other goddesses, you have Oestra, who is um, the goddess of essentially spring. Uh, You have Vor, who is the goddess of wisdom. Um, And then you have the Norns, who are essentially the three fates. Um, I just forgot the one for past. And then the the middle one is Vrthandi. And she is for the present. And then you have Ur, who is for the future. And so there is a rune uh, for Ur, and you you use her when you're trying to do uh, divinations. Um, she's cool, but like Varthandi is so much cooler because Varthandi is also about like, she's also about like creation and destruction, but also like staying in the moment and like creating in the moment and destroying in the moment. She's no. wonderful. Yeah. To, to me, she has, and this is going to be super wrong. I'm sure like some dudes somewhere are going to pull their hair out, but Verthandi to me has, is sort of like the, the present embodiment of Udra. And Udra is that energy that, I mean, some people call it bloodlust, but it can either be used for destruction or for creation. And so, you know, it's that like excitement, that nervous energy, that, you know, adrenaline rushing through your body. And so f- for me, Vertandi 
is Udra. Like she is you in the moment choosing, will you destroy or will you create? And, you know, it's also kind of like a Freyan energy that goes along with that as well. Um, Can you spell her name? Can you say her name again and spell it? Verthandi? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's V-E-R-T-H-A-N-D-I. Okay. She's creation and destruction. I mean, this is a, I mean, this is why I think, again, the Norse pantheon, no matter how it's been portrayed in popular culture, if you just simply open it up and look at it, the goddess realm in that pantheon is extraordinary. Yeah. There's an incredibly powerful uh, and not, uh, you know, I contrast it with the Greek where you have some great goddesses, but it's really, that's a, that's a boy's club. That's a boy's realm. Whereas it always seemed to shine through that in the Norse realm, you had a much stronger, even if it was the, the attempt was to kind of bury it, a much stronger feminine power or divine element. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's probably why it resonated so strongly. And not just because there are certain familial frame practices in my family, but also because like it just it when I would read about the the Greek and Roman gods, it was like, yeah, okay, cool. So it's just a bunch of bros and some women that they quote unquote allow to be cool sometimes. And yet the women are always in competition with each other and are always, you know, going after other women and being really catty and petty. Cool. Cool, 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 cool. And then you get to the Norse one. I mean, Freya's being pulled by cats in a chariot. Right? Yeah. (laughs) Like, you don't get more quote-unquote feminine. A woman being pulled by two pussies? Like, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) This is... (laughs) This is the goddess I can get behind. Yeah. You know, she's, uh, she's so cool. (laughs) Um, I'm trying to think what else needs to be said about them, but yeah, they're, it's just, it's, it's a rich, amazing, interesting, totally not white supremacist (laughs) pantheon. Right. right. So these goddesses called to you because they seemed to embody something that, we don't really see embodied in the spirituality that is prevalent in Murica. Yes, very much so. Well, and then you also have, you know, I was born a warrior. Like the fact that I didn't come out of my mother's womb with a sword in my hand was good for her, but also like very surprising. And (laughs) so also the idea of a culture that would allow, you know, not just shield maidens, but Valkyries, you know, and that Valkyries were the ones who went and collected the dead. And there's a history in my family of also being like um, the people who help people cross over. And so the, the idea of there being like a whole system in place for women who did, you know, what my family, what the women in my family did, you know, helping people to cross over to the other side peacefully and and beautifully and you know that also really really resonated with me Mm. and that's such a part of matriarchal tradition i mean it was you know it was the women who you prepared the bodies and and you know sat well essentially sat shiva and yeah it's it's Women are present at the birth and we're present at the death, right? Mm-hmm. 
we guard those borders. Mm-hmm. We stand at the, at the, you know, at the, at the crossing point. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And it's, it's a powerful thing. It's frightening if you are not in that position, you know, it's frightening to see somebody have that kind of, that's that sort of natural power. Um, and, you know, reading, reading about these gods, I constantly felt that men who were writing about this were, were always policing the bodies of these powerful, amazing, strong, beautiful women who could create and who could be there at the beginning and the end in a way that was so profound and so meaningful and in a way that men just couldn't, you know, they, yeah. they just couldn't. Yeah. Mm. Well, there's certainly a, there's certainly a current uh, in these traditions of just trying to hide. It's almost like embarrassingly trying to hide these sort of matriarchal and powerful female elements like, Oh, you know, let's just, let's not let that get out. Let's just kind of brush that under the rug. Mm-hmm. And let's reimagine it and we'll just kind of tell the parts we want. So I think that's what happens a lot. And I think that's why you see this weird tension and you see these undercurrents that seem inexplicable. Like, why is this there if this is supposedly only about the gods and the male? Why do you have such a strong current? And I think we're constantly bumping up against those tensions in, in modern culture. Mm-hmm. That's why it's always there. How does, how does this, you know, I'd ask Dawn this, um, what's your practice like, your own spiritual practice like, you know, on a regular basis? I mean, my, my spiritual background is I'm Catholic, so I have a particular, you know, I have Sunday Mass, and I have my prayers, I have the rosary, and I have certain things that I practice regularly. Are there certain, what kinds of things do you practice? Or is there, as Dawn was explaining to me, there's a different, you know, she has a different approach to how that practice works. Well, I will say this, I'm a very bad witch. I don't <laughs> I don't have I'm not very good at doing all the things that they tell you you're supposed to do in order to be a good witch in terms of ritual and practice. Who um, you? So just curious. Well, you know what you know what I mean, like the the nebulous they. <laughs> <laughs> You know, the royal day. <laughs> so it's a lot of things. So I, you know, I am obsessed with plants. Um, I am somebody who dumpster dives for plants when I see somebody throwing them out. Um, and so I surround myself with this greenery and my practice is very much grounded in the nature spirits in connectivity and that kind of stuff. And so tending to them, caring for them, even including them in my meditations is something that I do every day. Um, I also was uh, raised by people who were not only Presbyterian, but they were Buddhists. And so I also have like the chanting that I do and also certain meditations that I do. Um, But it's also, you know, I do a lot of things that are tied to moon cycles where I have specific meditations or movements that I do or spells that I put out. Um, I do a lot of work with like crystal therapy and crystal healing. Um, I 
I don't know that I'm answering your question, but <laughs> no, absolutely. I'm just, I'm just curious as to what kind of how the practice would work because it is so different, obviously from mainstream, at least now is mainstream, although that's changing, right? Mm -hmm. uh, from mainstream spiritual practices, and it's different from mine. So I'm just, I was curious as to how that worked on a daily basis and and how that kind of influenced you influences you during the day, you know, during your life, you know, going through things. Yeah. I mean, there are definitely moments where it's all about listening to your guides as well, right? Listening to yourself, listening to your guides, listening to the energy around you. And so there are times where I just, you just sort of get the hit of like, okay, now you need to do this. Now, you know, now you need to sit in stillness. You need to meditate and you need to have this seed thought. Um, that kind of stuff can happen. Um, or, you know, I'll be drawn to a research topic and then I'll go down a rabbit hole of learning about like Lilith. I, I just went down a huge rabbit hole of learning about Lilith and the history of Lilith, or even like I went down a rabbit hole the other day of learning about the traditions of Brunhilde and the different, uh, the different iterations of the story of Brunhilde, um, and I, I think that in and of itself is a practice as well, listening mm -hmm. to what information you need in the moment that you need it. And also having the discipline to say, okay, enough is enough. I'm not going to spend 14 hours reading Wikipedia pages about Brunhilde, you know, not that mm -hmm. I read Wikipedia pages on Brunhilde only, but you know what I mean? Like it's, it's. Listen, who doesn't? Right? <laughs> Listen, that could be a really interesting rabbit hole to go down. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> Wikipedia pages are fascinating because you're not just researching the subject, you're researching the people who put the information out there. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I remember when I was doing my master's, which was on Mary Magdalene, I decided just to see, because, you know, part of it was also like uh, cultural perceptions of her um, in popular, her popular image. And so I was like, what is on her Wikipedia page? And I was horrified. I was horrified. And there, there was a, a guy who had gone through who uh, was Muslim and had rewritten certain parts of her, uh, of her biography saying, well, she didn't actually exist. She's a, she's a Christian figment of the imagination. And I thought, well, now that's interesting. And I was like, I wonder how long this is going to stay up. And I kept refreshing it. And it stayed up for about a year. Wow. <laughs> and it's, I, it's, yeah, it's, that's, I think, a real big issue. Because I found that when I look up warrior woman stuff or matriarchal stuff, Wikipedia is, is obviously, it's users define it, users edit it. And most of those users are male. Mm -hmm. So warrior women that I think there's good argument that existed, they'll be called a myth. Yes. And it's like, okay, hold up yeah. here. It's almost like I think we have to have an initiative if we all go into Wikipedia and give the, you know, other viewpoint on this or the other scholarship on it. Yeah, exactly. Well, and even like you look at, you know, specifically for Mary Magdalene, there were things that they were saying like, oh, you know, she's the one who wept at Jesus's feet and washed his feet with her hair. I'm like, that was Mary of Bethany, man. And then they would talk about her being like a fresh young thing. And I'm like, dude, she was menopausal. Like, what, what are we doing? <laughs> like, so even like... Christian authors going in 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 continuing with this popularized view of her that is incorrect. 
um, was really fascinating to me as well. And you, you find that so much with, like you said, with these women warriors, with these, like even female historical figures. I remember one of the, the boats that we have that shows us what the ships of the Norse folk were, one of the very first longships. Um, I cannot remember his name, but I, I may be conflating this between two stories, but there, there was a boat that was found that had, that belonged to a queen. And, uh, it was the queen and her slave and then all of her possessions that were in this boat. And it was a huge archeological find. And I remember reading about it and it was, of course, you know, men who had found it, men who were writing the story of it. And I, I said, something just doesn't feel right. Something doesn't feel right. A queen and her slave. That doesn't feel right. This isn't, this isn't, you know, Italy. This isn't ancient Italy. This isn't ancient Greece. This isn't, you know, um, and yes, there was a, a Viking tradition that did wind up coming along where, you know, when somebody died, they would put the wife on the boat and kill them alongside, or they, you know, there was like a whole awfulness, but this just didn't seem right. And it's this, I kept thinking, I don't think it's her slave. I feel like it's her lover or her partner or something. Or or something. Yes, exactly. And... You know, if you start like really digging into it, it makes a hell of a lot more sense that it was her consort instead of just a slave she liked. Well, it's there's a real we've talked about this and Dawn uh, knows we've talked about this all the time, the way these archaeological finds are judged. And I know the find you're talking about. There was the ship with the the woman they found on it. There was also immense archaeology that points towards women being involved in warfare, even the most recent one where they talked about the the warrior, the this this great warrior chieftain that they realize now, because they've done the DNA, was a woman. Yes. Clearly a warrior woman. And this happens a lot, a lot in the finds in the West in particular, I find, again, because I think there is an importance to holding on to a myth that let's keep buried any aspect of the warrior ethos among women in the West, because that just damages the brand, so to speak. So you kind of, kind of get rid of that. But it's, it's a, um, just one other thing on that. There was a find in Tuscany, I believe it was the Etruscan find. And I, I think about this all the time. They had the discovery of a tomb that they called the warrior prince tomb. And they said, Oh, this is amazing. We found a warrior prince and his consort and look, she was burned. She, she burned herself, you know, cremated next to him what, a, what an incredible story and then they did the dna analysis and it was a woman warrior and it was a guy consort and somebody was like well maybe it's not a warrior maybe it was just like a ceremonial stuff all these weapons that we are finding yeah, it's here. amazing oh how quickly the story changes yeah yeah <laughs> it's so horrifying i mean you you even see that when you look at the crusades so the crusades they there was this whole slander campaign. Well, okay, there there are two ways to look at this. There's one that it was a slander campaign that the uh, indigenous population that was fighting against the Latins, which was a occupying population, um, and no matter how long an occupation has been there, it's still an occupation. So the indigenous population that's fighting against the Latins started this thing about how when they would go to the bodies of the dead after a battle, when they were successful, they would find women among their ranks. So there was this, this, it was, it became widespread. They were like, Oh my God, the Christians are, are using women in their armies. 
And they used it as a derisive thing. And the Christians then turn around, they're like, no, we're not. We would never be so disgusting as to allow women to fight. And it's like, all right, but like, why is it a bad thing to have women fight in your army? One. And two, did you have women fight in your army? Like, you know, you have to, you have to wonder. It's, it's more likely that they did, even unknowingly. It's more likely that there were women who joined up. You hear about this all the time. Women taking on the, the identities of their brother. That's how we got a female pope. And, and so you, you have to, you have to wonder where the truth is in that, that there probably were women in the army and that the indigenous population finding these bodies in amongst their occupiers, they were accustomed also to having female warriors, but were steeped in patriarchy at the time. And so it must have been a thing of being like, well, they're sacrificing their women or was it in awe or, you know, you just. You just have to wonder. You just have to wonder. Where was this? Stuff. Where was this again? In the Middle East. So, oh, um, yeah. Because yeah. there, there's a famous story of, uh, I believe it was the Byzantine. Um, it was a, a, a battle. There might have been Danish forces, but I'll, I'll look because uh, for the listener, I don't want to put out the wrong information. But essentially, uh, they had found when the battle was over that among the slain were of these women. And I think that may be maybe related to the story you're mentioning. And so I, I believe it was the, the Muslim forces that found it among the Byzantine warriors. Mm -hmm. So, and I'll look it up. I'll try to confirm this uh, later, how, what two forces were involved, but it's pretty clear that women have been a large part of battle and warfare in certain, in certain parts of the world. Uh, I we were talking with Max Dashu about this. I mean, one of the things that's significant for me is it's not just a matter of can you find women warriors in a culture, but can you find a culture of warrior women? And that is particularly true when you look at, for example, let's say the Celts, mm. where you see it throughout Roman history. The Romans are always writing about how you're they're encountering you know battles among the Celtic tribes with the women as well as the men. You know, Boudicca, of course, as I bring up probably every episode, Boudicca yeah. is a great example. Well, not that. that I don't love to talk about women warriors, as we all know, but um, but let's circle this wonderful discussion about archaeological finds of historical women warriors back to <laughs> the feminine mm -hmm. divine. Sure. Well, Sorry, Don. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, I think, I think in one sense, let's not sever. I mean, that is an aspect of the feminine. And so I think, and it's also an aspect of what people are listening over here. So yeah. it's, oh, it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's certainly, but, certainly fine, but yeah. But, um, A female but, warrior is the feminine divine. Well, you know, I, the, the, the female war gods, <laughs> Sean, Sean approves. Um, the female war gods, goddesses rather, were were often the ones that called to me. You know, like I was, I was not interested in doing rituals to Aphrodite. I was, I was interested in doing rituals to Athena. Mm. So, so it, you know, it uh, it makes sense that as warriors ourselves, we are drawn to an aspect of the feminine divine that is martial. No doubt about it. Um, but how does does that impact your daily practices? Because I think I think a lot of my daily practices are not centered on the warrior aspect of the goddess, but rather on the sort of um, 
Well, I talked about this in the first episode on the sort of um, karmic aspect of spirituality, that, that spirituality is a walk. It's a journey. And mm -hmm. every step I take is related to the, you know, it's, it's keeping your feet on the good red road. It's walking in, in accordance with taking this earth walk in accordance with what you believe mm -hmm. and trying not to, um, trying not to square that, trying not to, um, you know, to work against the very forces that you are, that you, um, are trying to promote. Mm-hmm. It, it is interesting for me to listen to both of you, though, that you find that you both emphasize that kind of martial aspect of the feminine divine, even as you're talking about this walk. So there's some there's something there that's interesting, and I know that's maybe for another episode to explore of why that is that may resonate. And be interesting to see if it resonates with other contemporary women who follow a non-traditional, quote-unquote, uh, spiritual path. Uh, spiritual path that is focused on femaleness. You know, well, is that is that how something? Much, how much personal responsibility is in your worship, Stephanie? Oh, a thousand percent, all of yeah. it, all of it. And I think that is actually, I think that is actually tied to the idea of well, something that I was taught was that the sacred feminine is a warrior, and that the sacred masculine is the nurturer. Um. Whoa! Wait, can I? Can you say that again? Yeah. <laughs> that. Expand upon that. Yes, yeah. please. <laughs> I where, where did you hear? Where did this come from? Uh, my life. I've I've actually heard it my whole life from like every every person that I've studied under who was legit um, and wasn't a, <laughs> and wasn't a white guy. Uh, <laughs> so, especially when I lived in Scotland, I. I did a lot of research and, and work with a lot of really interesting women, a lot of old women. Um, I don't know what it is about me, but I love old women and old women love me. That's, I think I can't wait to be one. And I was taught at, from a young age uh, by my family and then by, you know, friends who came from uh, First Nations tribes and um, Buddhists and, you know, whether these were just outliers or whether this was just like the message that I was supposed to get, um, me and the people around me were supposed to get, I was taught that the sacred feminine is a warrior, um, and that the sacred masculine is a nurturer and that somewhere along the way, um, the, the story or the reality of those two was reversed and that it was reversed during the patriarchal age. Um, and it's because men are supposed to be the ones who, they're the ones who like, you know, the women carry the child, they give birth to the child, and then it's supposed to then go to the men because the women have done their job of carrying it, nourishing it with their, their breast milk, nourishing it with the food that they eat when they're pregnant, but then it's the men's turn. And the women are then supposed to be the ones who go out and they fight and they, you know, because they have a higher pain threshold, you know, they, their center of gravity is different. And so they're able to move differently in a way that allows them to, 
to be more effective, shall we say, in their martial moves. Um, and I just, I guess I always assumed everyone thought the same thing. So this is, this is actually really interesting that you guys are surprised to hear this. Well, no, no, it, it, for, I think, you know, and Dawn, you know, you give your take on it. I mean, think for us, it falls in line with a lot of the things we've been exploring. I mean, it's just to hear it put that way, something that we've been journeying through on so many different levels, whether it's historically, whether it's about religion, whether it's about the goddess, whether it's about the sacred feminine, that concept, that sensibility, that also sense that the world is flipped from what its truth is in many ways is yeah. something that has gone through this, all these series of podcasts. So you come along and just blurt it out there to everybody. <laughs> like, Holy crap. You're welcome. Take it in stride like, like it's the truth or something. <laughs> It's a pack of lies. No, I'm just kidding. Right, that's right. Well, well, it's not only that the world is is flipped, but also that there is this sense of two parts of a whole. That mm. that the masculine needs the feminine, and the feminine needs the masculine. Like, mm. and not to say that you know that translates into men need women and women need men. I'm talking about the principles. Mm-hmm. Like we need both to be in balance. Right. And we're living in this world now that just exalts the masculine mm. in so many ways and denigrates the feminine. And it just puts each, not only our society as a whole, but each of us individually mm-hmm. out of balance. Well, and it's exalting it's exalting the masculine, but what it is, is it's exalting feminine, sacred feminine qualities, but assigning them to masculine. Wow. I was thinking, as, as Dawn said that, that's what was I went through my head. It's really interesting because Dawn, this has come up before too, when we talk about how people are defining feminine and masculine. Right. So right. it's sort of like we keep falling, we fall back to these patterns of feminine is delicate and you know it's just it's got to be protected and gentle and, <laughs> and it'll fall over kind of thing it's like well like you know stephanie's saying it's like if you start to flip that around what is interesting to me to my ears and what comes through again for all the stuff we've been studying is the way you described it just now stephanie that it's being assigned the wrong way mm-hmm. really if you start looking at different things in history i think it really reveals a whole truth a whole different way of looking at where things start to fall into place and make sense about why they're out of whack so to speak mm-hmm. it reminds yeah. me of what max said that uh, patriarchy is maladaptive oh mm. oh my god yes isn't it amazing <laughs> yeah did we get those t-shirts printed yet or well, she's going? working on it she's working on okay. it i have my pre-order in so yeah <laughs> Can I get about 17 of them? <laughs> right. And just fling them from the balcony. Yep. <laughs> or should I say 13? I'll get 13, please. Perfect. Give me a sacred feminine number. <laughs> well, it reminds me of um, it reminds me of this book I read, and I'll need to I'll need to pull it up so that you can get the correct name. But um, I told uh, I told Dawn about this. There's a book I read written by a female uh, historian who 
otherwise known as a historian, um, who identifies as, you know, who identifies as female. Is that like a lady lawyer or a lady doctor? (laughs) It is. I am a lady podcaster. How about you guys? Um, But I, uh, you know, I think about this. So this book was written by an academic, a scholar, and it was about uh, Sarah and Hagar and the story of Sarah and Hagar and how it was uh, it was written and then rewritten and rewritten and rewritten. Um, and she went through and she was able to identify all of the added bits um, and who the different authors were and how they inserted patriarchal nonsense and how the relationship between Sarah and Hagar actually would have been this beautiful, sacred, divine, feminine thing. Hagar was carrying a child for Sarah. Sarah would have been a part of the process. And this idea that Sarah would have been, in her society, she would have been the stand-in for the goddess in the sacred ceremonies that were happening in an area of the world that still had goddess worshipping. And that when Hagar gave birth, she would have been there to, to partake in and lead the goddess rituals that celebrated the birth of the child that Hagar was carrying for Sarah. And that there wasn't any of this pettiness or weirdness or fighting over a dude because that just would not have been a part of their society. There would have been an understanding. And the, uh, the outcasting of Hagar with her child would have more been because of a bad decision um, by, uh, what's his name? Abraham. <laughs> I couldn't remember his name. The guy in the story. Um, but, you know, it would have been Sarah being like, you know, your behavior is really bad. And he's like, oh, okay, well, I'm going to do this and this will fix it. <laughs> Exiling, you know, the this important person <laughs> in their household who would have actually had a beautiful relationship with Sarah. And um, I think about that a lot. I think about that a lot because I like to go back and I like to reread these texts because I'm a big old nerd. And I like to try to test myself to see if I can figure out where the lies were, Mm. where the rewrites were, who's writing this, who added this. And, you know, I actually started doing that even before this book because my master's is on Mary Magdalene. I had to read a lot of stuff. I actually read the Bible from cover to cover because I wanted to get, you know, the Old Testament context for understanding the societal and cultural things that were going on at the time of Jesus um, Mm -hmm. and where Mary Magdalene would have fit into that. I read all sorts of historical fiction about her. I read the Nag Hammadi texts. Um, You know, I read literally everything that I could. And I started realizing that there were times when you're reading a passage where there were three different voices, right? Two, three, sometimes four different voices. And you got that in the Old Testament. You got that in the New Testament. You even got that in some of the non-Kamadi texts. And I, it's just so – it saddens me to think – one, how insecure somebody has to be that they're like, oh, you better go back and make this about dudes. And two, <laughs> and two how much time we've lost 
in just looking at a story like Sarah and Hagar with two women who were in a sacred union, essentially together, a sacred contract, how much time we've lost celebrating that and allowing ourselves, you know, across the gender spectrum to allow ourselves to enter into sacred contracts and sacred unions in a way that isn't so harmful, that isn't so toxic, that isn't so completely separated from the divine because the patriarchy doesn't even go with sacred masculinity. It goes, it it uses some weird base serpentine energy that is completely disconnected from the divine. And we, I just feel like we've lost so much time. It's, it's really uh, interesting. I mean, so many of the things you're saying are resonating um, with just things in terms of what I've always seen and looked up and looking at history and looking at how masculine and feminine are handled. It is amazing. And serpentine is a, is, it's really stands out for me because that's the way it feels like. It feels like it's a constant. I, I've, I've used this phrase, Dawn's heard me use it, you know, patriarchal Aikido. It's constantly this thing where, you know, the, the powers of patriarchy in charge are constantly shifting and moving and using this kind of like leverage to flip things so that they're still standing and they're still at the center, mm-hmm. you know, the way you do an Aikido, the way you use somebody else's energy against them, whether you say you're helping them or whether you're whatever it is. So it really is interesting to hear your take on this. I think in uh, Dawn, we talked about this. I think we're going to need to wrap up at least this, because I would certainly love Stephanie to talk with you more about this again, because you've opened up, you've cracked open a little hole in the cosmos that from which is seeping out some amazing energy of, of stuff that we touch on here all the time. Um, so it's just incredible. But um, we kind of have a thing when we wrap things up here of, you know, what would we like to leave our listeners with a little bit? Uh, I won't use the exact same phrasing that we always use for it on our more academic stuff, but is there anything for this go round? because we would certainly love to you come back, that you'd love to leave people with about at least your journey in the feminine divine. Hmm. That is a very big responsibility. No. <laughs> <laughs> or just a little bit. Or you just leave them with a, a nice thought, like have a great day. <laughs> it's, it's totally fine. So. Um, I guess be, be aware of your sources and be aware of your truths in your reactions to those sources. I think trust yourself more when it comes to understanding the history of where we've been so you can understand your purpose in your now using the more sacred feminine energy than the nonsense we're being fed right now. Okay. Mm. Nice. Yeah. You. Well, Stephanie's awesome. <laughs> I think really, I think really that says it all. I will second that. I will second that. I'll give you a big chair. Oh my goodness! Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for joining us today, Steph. Actually, really, genuinely amazing discussion. Yeah. Yeah. I would love 
Uh, I'm sure, you know, uh, uh, Don will, would agree with that to come back and talk more about this. Cause I, the, so much of what we've discussed about how things are different than what they appear is so relevant. And, and how, how important that is in recognizing the feminine divine, because so much of what we've been taught uh, flies in the face of it. And yet, and yet there is this inner truth. Like there's this, this quiet little voice that says, that doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. It just mm-hmm. doesn't make sense. Why, why can't I fully embrace this thing that, you know, everyone around me who's in power is saying, no, this is the way it is. It absolutely is this way. And there's this little voice inside me that says, I, I, I think there's something else going on here. Yeah. And, yeah. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Yes. <laughs> exactly. exactly. And, and trust that inner voice because there is something more going on here. And, um, and you know, the divine she the 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 feminine part of all that is you know they she's she has withstood it all she has been denied she has been degraded she has been denigrated she has been um demonized but you can still feel her inside of you and 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 it's and what they're saying about her is wrong. On that note, I think that that's a great way to end it. So I want to thank Stephanie so much. I mean, this has been an amazing discussion. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. This is great. Absolutely. And as always, Dawn Sam Alden, the keeper of the flame. Thank you. <laughs> so. And Sharon Marlon Newcomb, the manifester. Thank you so much. And this has been the 34 Cersei Salon, Feminine Divine. Thank you for listening. Take, Take care. care, everyone, and blessed be. Mm-hmm.